Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. Welcome, everybody, to Welcome. another edition of Birthing Instincts Podcast. Formerly Dr. Stu's podcast with me. <laughs> we say that in the intro all the time. With you. Who are you? <laughs> Everybody knows you who you because are because you're listening. You. you are quite famous, actually. What are you talking about? In our circles, hmm. everybody loves you. Everybody loves you, mister. Well, they so they, tell me about your morning. We need a lot of love uh, these days. Um, well, I overslept. I had an eight o'clock Zoom meeting with um, with a, a twin client who's in Nigeria, and Ooh. she was moving to the states um, the end of middle of next month, so in October. So, cool. but the reason I was slated, I overslept, is because. My trusted sidekick, Emily, uh, was texting me this morning at before 7 a.m., uh, which people do all the time from the East Coast or from the Central Time Zone, thinking they're not thinking, and they realize that they know that they can turn their phone off, but my phone is never turned off. So yeah. the other day, my, my own son texted me at 4.45 in the morning. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing, people? So... Yes, if you need to text me uh, and it's not emergent, then don't text me till after 8 a.m. Pacific time. Stu, you know you can turn certain people off, right? Yeah, but why would I have to go through all that stuff? Well, because then they won't wake you. Yeah, but then somebody else will. <laughs> <laughs> no, and plus I would never want to turn off my kids. What if they really needed me at 4.45 in the morning? Yeah. So you can't, you can't do that. And I can't turn off Emily. Certainly can't turn you off. So <laughs> I can't turn off Beth or, or any of the other midwives to do that. So I had a really nice uh, consult. And we, uh, we had a student from Texas join in on the, not a student, excuse me, a midwife from Texas join in who's going to be coming out. Uh, she joined in on the Zoom. She's going to be coming out to spend about three months with me in the end of November, early December. Uh, wow. To get some twin and breach experience, which is fun for me to have that. Hopefully Alyssa will have her uh, license by then. Otherwise I will have a plethora of students. <laughs> like a plethora of students, but. Um, Are you going to um, announce your, your, new, your new format? Yeah, well, that was my very first thing. Besides introducing the fact that we have a very exciting guest who's going to join us. I'm, I'm excited. Hermine uh, Hayes-Klein will be with us today, and she's a, uh, a birth and human rights attorney. And she'll be joining us in about, oh, 10 or 15 minutes, I think. And yes, I want to make an announcement for everybody. And it's partly because of my friend Nathan Riley's impetus and also support from people like Bliss. I have been. Um, responding to emails, answering questions, calling in prescriptions, reviewing labs, reviewing non-stress tests or ultrasound reports, acting as a consultant for 
midwives, for doulas, for lactation consultants, for the general population, for people for, for 36 years. And I've never actually monetized it. I've never charged for it before. But now with telemarketing taking off and all that stuff, I've, I'm starting a consultation service for people Tele, that- Telehealth, you know, not telemarketing, telehealth. Did I say telemarketing? Yes. Oh. Well, some of it actually is telemarketing <laughs> because a lot of health, a lot of what we think is health isn't really health anymore. But we're going to stay on an upbeat note today as best we can. Although we we'll probably get to topics that bring us down. But um, so people can go to my website if they want to. If, if somebody wants to have me fill a prescription that's not a midwife um, calling for one of their clients, um, they can they can hire me to do that for ninety nine dollars. If somebody has a question on email, like I get five, 10 questions a day through Instagram messaging or whatever, you know, my doctor says this, or what do you think of that? And I would spend two, three hours a day responding to people with not just two word answers either. No. I you know you, you people know that you, you see, you've heard me read some of my answers on the um, show. So yeah. um, I'm hoping that people will receive this well and understand the necessity of it. And if you want to say a couple of supportive words on my behalf, Bliss, I would really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> you, you didn't need to prompt me, but um, yeah, you know, I was thinking about, I'm really proud of you. I think this is really important um, because, you know, even when you were up here visiting me and we were taking this beautiful walk in Montecito, you know, you were on the phone with somebody um, and feeling pulled and torn uh, while we didn't have internet, even on your vacation, because you know that people count on you. So, you know, I think that um, it's important to respect our time and to have people respect our time and to have, you know, have the exchange feel good. Um, and so I think it's really, I think it's really great that you are doing that. And I know that I've, you know, I'm not practicing actively at the moment, but when I when I did, you know, to know that I had a doctor that I could turn to that I trusted was invaluable um, to be able to like get prescriptions filled and stuff like that, because, you know, sending my client in to someone who I didn't trust, you know, just is a wealth of uh, complications that could happen. So I, I am really proud of you. Um, I think that it's a great Thing that you're doing for yourself to you know to just really respect and honor your own time thank you as i get older it's getting harder for me to do as yeah. many births as i was that i'd like to be doing every month and so this is a part of my sustainability thing i yeah. don't want to i don't want to just retire um and i don't want to stop doing birthing but i but having a passive source of income for most physicians is a rather difficult thing to do because we sell our our time and our knowledge. And um, yeah. usually it's done in an office setting or in a hospital setting, but my time and knowledge is often done from my couch or from the hiking trail or from, you know, my car. And, you know, if I was a lawyer, I'd be billing for all those hours and we just don't do that in my profession. So it's a little bit, I, I, I'm, a, I'm feeling a little bit better about it because it went online yesterday and already two midwives have signed up and there's a thing for $999 a year that'll give them yeah. access so they can call me for a refill. They can call me with a, to look at an NST or they can ask me a question about a fetal heartbeat that they heard funny or something. 
And that way I, I don't ever, I'm not gonna have the sort of resentment that was starting to build up in me, that's all. Yeah, 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 good. So I don't wanna awesome. beat that, I don't wanna beat that to death. I wanna say something else. I was on the, on the Down to Birth podcast, uh, which I don't think has been posted yet, but maybe by the time this one comes out, it will be. So I, we talked about usual topics like breaches and stuff like that. And we got into twins. And I said something to, to um, the ladies that I had never said before. Um, I said that um, we were talking about twins and how I get all these, these people that come to me and say, well, my doctor says that I have to be induced at 37 weeks. And if the second twin isn't head down, that I have to have a C-section and stuff like that. And I always said, you know, look for another doctor, blah, blah, blah. But what I never said before was that doctors who don't know how to do a breach involved with twins shouldn't be doing twins ever. They shouldn't be doing twins. Yeah. All right. Because if you don't know how to do all kinds of twins, then you can't guarantee that if twins go into labor vertex, vertex, that the second one is going to stay vertex after the first one comes out. If you don't know what to do and you're so nervous about that, that all along you're telling her that if twin B is breached, we need to do a C-section, maybe you should refer all your twins to somebody else. Is there anything wrong with what I'm saying? Um, no. And I, you know, I would say that that's true for singletons too. You know, that that's a skill right. that's lost. And if you don't know what to do with a breech baby, then maybe you shouldn't be delivering babies. Yeah, but you certainly, that's my with, opinion. with twins is something that you can, you know, ahead of time, there, there are more doctors who do twins vaginally than there are singleton breech vaginally. So if you don't know how to do a second twin, you should not be doing any twins. And don't, and don't build yourself out there as an obstetrical expert because you're not. Okay, Right. enough. Um, <laughs> should we talk about breasts for a little bit? Um, it's a topic, I don't know. It's a topic, that, it's a topic that I think about. Um, like <laughs> often. Often, and for many reasons. But ultimately, it's really interesting because in my training, we, very, we rarely ever get any training in, in breastfeeding or breast care. I never heard the term fourth trimester or matrescence through all of medical school. And yet it's such an important part of our, um, the care that we provide in our model. And yeah. so I get calls all the time about breast problems. And I refer, because I'm not an expert in that, to you guys and to lactation consultants. And we have a new uh, partner, uh, uh, Bamboobies, which I think you want to talk about because you like them. I really do love Bamboobies. We carried them um, at the sanctuary. We carried their awesome bamboo heart-shaped um, reusable breast pads. And if anybody knows me, they know that I am an environmentalist and I really believe in using products that are good, not only for our bodies, but also are good for the environment. And so Alex and I did a lot of research when we um, selected products for our eco boutique. Remember that cute boutique we had? Um, and all of the products were hand selected and Bamboobies was one of the ones that we really loved. Um, 
So they have a couple of new products that I'm not as familiar with, but I'm really excited um, to be partnered with them. They have a beautiful organic um, nipple balm. And the great thing about using products that are organic on your breasts, I mean, first of all, your skin absorbs anything that you put on it. Um, so, you know, you don't want to put anything on your skin that you wouldn't actually ingest or that you wouldn't have your baby ingest. So knowing that it's organic and, um, all, uh, you know, natural ingredients means that you don't have to wipe them off before your baby breastfeeds. Um, so great. Yeah. So I really love their products there. Um, the, the reusable pad is heart-shaped, so, women who have used um, uh, breast pads, you wouldn't know this too, of course, but sometimes they show through your clothing and, um, you know, that's not necessarily the look that we're going for. So the shape of it lends itself to be able to be um, not as noticeable too. So there's lots of wonderful things that we love. I love about their products. And I'm so glad that they just decided to join us in supporting our podcast. Yeah, well, you know, everyone has breasts, so it's we should take care of them, <laughs> right? Um, they also have the uh, yoga nursing bra, which I don't know much about, but I wanted to mention so people, when they go to their website at bamboobies, B-A-M-B-O-O-B-I-E-S.com, and they can follow them on Instagram as well. And right now, you can use the code instincts for 40% off your purchase. I know 40% is really generous. So make sure that you share that with your clients, with your friends. Um, you can give them our code. It supports the podcast and being able to continue to bring information available to you guys. So please yeah. do. Yep. Yep. Breasts are important. <laughs> <laughs> and babies. Okay. So I, I have a, um, uh, a letter and that is uh, from Megan. Uh, spelled uh, the, I think the English way or whatever, M-A-E-G-A-N. And she says, hi, Dr. Fishbein. I hope you're well. I've been catching up on your podcast lately. And there's been lots of talk about the vaccine and pregnancy. I emailed you earlier in the year mentioning I had my second dose of the, the day before I found out I was pregnant. Listening to all the conversations, I was inspired to update you. I ended up having a miscarriage at 11 weeks. I went in for an ultrasound because, uh, yeah, I know, because I was bleeding and the doctor said it looked like the baby was only about eight weeks along, which is fairly common that you discover it weeks later. And then people, people, people sometimes will miscarry at three months and they'll think, oh my God, I've just miscarried a baby at, you know, 14 weeks when actually the fetus stopped growing at six or seven weeks. So um, yeah. it, it, ultrasound has shown, uh, taught us a lot. But anyway, she says, anyways, I had told them from the beginning, I was worried because of the timing of when I had my shots. And of course they blew it off and said, this can't be from that. But I know they can't say that either way. There's just no way to know. Since I am in nursing school and have made the commitment to be in the mainstream medical field, I decided to do all the, all the vaccine updates and check-ins. I always selected that I was pregnant and reported my miscarriage. No one ever contacted me, no one. Just as you said for them to report no major complications is just infuriating. And then happily, I can say we are pregnant again, 18 weeks. And so far, it all looks good. Thanks for all you do, all your words of reason. You and Bliss are wonderful. And oh, congratulations on your pregnancy. Yeah, I'm not, we're not talking about the jab today, but I just wanted to talk about the idea that, that you report these things and no one's listening. 
Yeah. So when you think about the VAERS reporting system and how many adverse events there are, and the fact that no, sometimes they don't get back to you and how many people are more like Megan than, than actually get it reported, because it is a, it is a, a maze to get through this thing and, and takes time to do these reports. So most people will just blow it off. But to, to go through all that thing and never be contacted, what sort of what does that what does that basically say? Yeah, and if uh, there's if there's one Megan, then there's hundreds of other people who either reported and nothing happens, or don't even report it because the doctor says no, it could never be that, and then they say okay. And I just want to I want to reiterate one sentence from the Code of Medical Ethics, which is supported by the American Medical Association. I'm not the biggest fan, and ACOG. And that is this one sentence, the use of coercion is never acceptable. I'll just say that, I'll say it one more time. The use of coercion is never acceptable. Yeah. Okay, so interestingly enough, I was talking to somebody about the, the election results from 2020. We were going through things and I said, you know, I think I was talking about states that, that people are moving to. And one of them I mentioned was West Virginia. And my friend said that West Virginia is kind of a sketchy state. It may not be as conservative or as, as red as other, other states. And I said, no, I think it went like 70 or 80% for Trump over uh, Biden. And so I wanted to look up the election map from West Virginia. So I put in 2020 West Virginia election results in my phone. I spoke to uh, Siri and I asked her, and of course, Siri goes to Google, and so Google brings it up. And I just wanted to—I wanted to read um, just briefly the the sources that Google puts up. All right, and and tell me what's wrong with this from my perspective, Liz. Wikipedia, NBC News, CNN.com, Politico, New York Times, USA Today, Ballotpedia, Washington Post, um, Bloomberg. Next page. Uh, News and Sentinel, West Virginia Public, uh, NPR.org, a couple of those, and ABC News, uh, Times Herald, BBC, Metro News, next page. How many people go to the third page? Um, uh, sometimes I don't understand, LA Times. Um, and, then, and then lower on the third page is Fox News, all right? So my point being is that do you think it's not that more balanced. people Yeah, do you think that more people went to Fox News than than about 90% of those other other sources to find out about the West Virginia elections? And of course they did. Because half the country doesn't like the New York Times or the or the, or the LA Times or CNN or any of those things. And yet Google buries that lead. So I just, I want people to understand the censorship that we're doing it. And then, and now one of your favorite, uh, well, not one of your favorite hashtags, but the hashtag natural immunity has been removed from Instagram. So I guess there's no such thing as natural immunity anymore. It's just, I almost did a post about it. And I, you know, I'm, I do this thing where I get really riled up and then I create a post and then I sit on it. You know, like just give it 24 hours. And if it still feels really important to share, then you can share it. And I never shared it. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, 
if we don't think that we're being censored, um, we really need to take a good, a good look because natural immunity is considered, um, what did they say? That the against community standards, natural immunity. Yeah. It's a bad word. This is, um, I don't know, pretty scary for me. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's again, like we talked about in the last podcast, they just use language and they, it doesn't mean what they say it means. Like fact checkers doesn't mean anything because they're not checking facts. They have an ideology and they're just, they're just deleting facts they don't like. So that's what a fact checker does. Anyway, I just thought it was funny. And our guest is just about ready to come in. So I wanted to say two more things. Um, hospitals are shutting down, at least this past, past week, because people are walking out. Employees are refusing to get the vaccine. So again, this is what's called stage one thinking. Let's mandate everybody get the vaccine. Oh, now we can't take care of people because people have chosen not to get the vaccine. And yeah. um, I, I met with a couple and the husband is a sheriff uh, in one of the counties here near near my home. And he basically says that they are probably gonna be walking out before October 1st. Um, we'll see if that happens because this podcast will be up right around that time. And we'll see if that, that happens. But if firefighters and police officers walk out, um, We'll see what the politicians and the and the health health uh, um, totalitarians want to do. Yeah. Um, one other thing, I had a lady who contacted me with twins, and I told her we were talking back and forth, and and she said I told her to get a second opinion, and she said, "Yes, it has been quite difficult to get different perspectives lately. I tried to get an appointment with another OB because I told her she didn't. She was sort of feeling suspicious about her OB." So I said, mm -hmm. well, go, go find another OB and have a com consultation with them. And she said that they said that they would not do second opinion. So that made me feel quite hopeless. We are still looking though. We appreciate your perspective. So we have physicians who are not doing, offering second opinions. They're not seeing unvaccinated people. Partners are still excluded sometimes from ultrasounds. It's just, uh, what what's happening to medical ethics? What What happened to the, Use of coercion is never acceptable. What happened is to do no harm and treat all, you know, and and treat people that need help. Yeah. Yeah. It's um becoming very narrow-minded and um selecting what feels right for you. You know, I think about all of those nurses and doctors who were the on the front lines, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic are the same people that are being fired know. you know those were the people who were who were there even though they felt like you know potentially they were putting themselves at risk and their family at risk they were there doing what they felt was right so there's still good people out there Stu. well i know that we surround ourselves in that community and speaking of good people what a great segue bliss all right <laughs> because i uh, we have uh hermine hayes klein has just joined us and just for people that the three people out in the world that don't know who she is, Come on. <laughs> at least in our audience, in our audience anyway. Hermine Hayes-Klein is an attorney and international advocate for human rights and childbirth. Hermine taught law in the Netherlands at The Hague University from 2008 to 2012, where she was also the director of research center for reproductive rights. From 2012 to 2017, she organized six international conferences on human rights and childbirth in the US, Europe, Africa, and India, 
bringing together stakeholders from many disciplines to expose the human rights violations that women are facing during childbirth in different parts of the world. For the last decade, Hermine has represented and advocated for midwives, doulas, and the rights of birthing people across the United States and around the world. And she serves a mean cup of tea. And she's <laughs> a gem of a person who we are proud to call our friend. And uh, she also sends me information just under the wire. <laughs> so, um, she's welcome. on vacation. Well, she's in Hawaii. Welcome. Good morning, Hi. you guys. Thank you for inviting me to join your conversation this morning. I'm thrilled to have a chance to talk with you. Oh, we're so, ex we've been excited all week about okay. thinking about um, allowing our listeners to be able to hear your wisdom and the beautiful work that you're doing on the planet. It's so inspiring. Thank you. Yeah, we had talked, we had talked about uh, a couple podcasts ago about medical kidnapping and we presented a case or you, you, you know, I was actually camping with Bliss and we, we discussed this on the phone, which was Bliss's brilliant idea to bring you on. And you just jumped at the opportunity to talk about another case with um, the, when I, I contacted you about the lady with the baby with the broken bones and and that sort of thing, and then Child Protective Services stepping in and them not being told um, that during the delivery, they probably fractured multiple bones in this breached C-section delivery. Um, and anyway, so we don't have to specifically talk about any specific case, but this is, this is not isolated cases. And you are like, I'm a lightning rod for mistreatment of breaches and stuff like that. You're a lightning rod for this sort of stuff. So can you give us an insight as to the kind of things that you see and deal with and what everybody should be should know when they're having children or um, to watch out for? Absolutely. I mean, do you want to start a little bit touching on that phenomenon of people being threatened with um, CPS or Child Protective Services with regard to their decisions around childbirth? Because that's just one manifestation of the problem that the, all the three of us are sort of working to try to address in our- Yeah, that's a good I place to start. Oh, go ahead, Bliss. I was just gonna say, you know, I, I wanna hear what's on your heart. I wanna hear like, what what is most passionate for you in, inside of the work that you're doing right now? Well, thank you for asking. So, you know, I'm an attorney and I would say that um, my, ish, my work really focuses on um, the, the question of how would maternity care have to change? How would maternity care have to change in order for, um, you know, everybody in the room when a person is giving birth to feel safe and especially the woman who's giving birth herself to feel safe and to feel secure and to come out of um, the experience of giving birth feeling strong as a mother and as a parent um, rather than feeling traumatized or vulnerable. And, um, you know, my work really, I started this work really through listening to stories, just listening to friends' stories of giving birth and asking them to tell me all the details. Cause I found that if you didn't ask them for all the details, they would say, well, the birth was really crappy, but all that matters is a healthy baby. Cause that's yes. sort of what they expect. That's what the culture wants them to say about the birth of their child, wants women to say, it doesn't matter what happened to me. It doesn't matter how I was treated or, or how we achieved a live outcome at the end. All that matters is that outcome. But when I actually listened to them tell their stories in greater detail, I found that they would usually break down crying at some point in that story about the birth mm -hmm. of their child. And I'm not talking about happy tears either. I'm talking about traumatized tears. And usually the moment when they would start talking or they would start to cry, um, they were moments where they felt humiliated, disrespected, frightened, 
forced, coerced. And usually when they would tell me these aspects of the story, I would think, well, geez, there's a law about that. It's called the law, of, the law of informed consent and refusal. They don't get to do that to you. You get to ask questions. You, This is your body. Nobody gets to just do stuff to your body just because you showed up to have a baby. They have to tell you what they want to do to your body to help you and serve you. And it's all it's supposed to be in service of you. And the more stories I heard, you know, or more often I would ask myself, well, geez, who's working for who around here in the maternity ward? Because the way that women were being treated when they gave birth, it was like, it was as if they had owed a duty or an obligation to the providers and the providers were there to enforce that obligation if they hesitated to do what they were told kind of thing. But the problem with that expectation within maternal health care is that what they were expected to do, what the providers expected the birthing people to do in these situations was not evidence-based and was based on the provider's preference and convenience the vast majority of the time. And so, you know, so for example, in the United States, we have variability of cesarean section rates across hospitals from seven to 70%. And those studies have shown that that variation is not about um, that some hospitals are caring for sicker women than other, other hospitals or women that need more C-sections, that in fact, that variation is about provider preference. And that provider preference can happen on the individual level of a doctor who just thinks, you know, I'm busy, uh, whatever their personal circumstances are that make them think it would be easier to get this birth done in a predictable and controlled way for them, the provider, a C-section feels you know, less chaotic than supporting a woman through physiological labor. Um, and uh, so it can be the provider's own preference. Time, you know, st many studies have shown the role of profit incentive and time convenience incentive on providers in their call for cesarean section rate. We have abundant studies that, should, that prove that providers' recommendations for cesarean section and of course, cesarean section is just one um, form of intervention, unnecessary intervention that happens in birth, but it's a, it's a pretty significant one and one that's measured more than a lot of other interventions. So we have stats on it. And you know, it, so what, we, what the studies show from the providers is that individual providers, it can be about their own individual convenience or priorities or past trauma or whatever, but the hospital itself has its own perception of convenience. So provider preference can happen at the institutional level. The hospital prefers you to have a C-section for all kinds of reasons, including yeah. the increased facility fee that it receives for your post-surgical stay and everything around the surgery. And um, and then the providers have their, have their preference. And, you know, they can have their preference, but if I'm a a consumer or a person, a human being going to give birth, my only shield against that variability is my, my, my legal and human right of informed consent and refusal. And my, you know, so if I don't have that, if they don't understand, they can have their preferences, but at the end of the day, they have to advise and inform me and support me to make the decision that's best for me and my family, then I'm really screwed. And that state of being screwed is where what birthing people are in the United States today and in the vast majority of the world, that they're walking into systems in which whatever provider is standing in front of them might make a different recommendation, is likely to make a different recommendation than 10 other providers. You could line up 10 providers from hospitals around the country and they might make 10 different sets of recommendations to this one patient. And yet they will all expect that she will submit to their authority. <laughs> that's a really crazy situation for women to be in as they go into yeah. birth. And so my work ever since I figured out what was going on here, because 
I had this opportunity in The Hague to study this phenomenon worldwide. You know, I was teaching students from all over the world and I was able to study international law and international maternal health systems. And when I looked into it, what I saw was women are being abused basically all over the world where they give birth. A few countries are better, you know, countries, some are worse than others, right? New Zealand's probably the best which matches the fact that the status of women in New Zealand is the best. And so actually what you find when you compare across countries is that the way that women are treated in childbirth is a direct reflection of women's social, economic, and political status within that culture. The more empowered and you know, economically and otherwise, politically, socially, sexually, they are within a culture, the more likely they are to be treated as the capable agents of their care. And so you find that more as you go, say, north in Europe to England and Netherlands and mm-hmm. Scandinavia. And then, Where there's more midwives, correct? Absolutely. There, you're yeah. going to see a direct correlation in the status of women in each culture to the role of midwives in that culture. Where women are respected, you will find midwives and they will be respected within that maternal health system. They will be recognized as having value. They will be recognized as mattering. They'll be recognized as important. Where women are worthless, where women are degraded, you're not gonna find midwives (laughs) because midwives are worthless just like women in that culture. So even within the United States, you see the places in the United States with the most inequality, systematic inequality, racial inequality especially, are the places where you have the worst outcomes and where you have the least midwives. And so so what, what do you do? What, what, how does your work impact this now? So, so what I, my work takes two fundamental prongs to try to address this problem of the fact that women are getting mistreated chronically in childbirth around the world, including in the United States. And that is on the one hand to strengthen the recognition that the right of informed consent and refusal and all of the other human rights, including the right of non-discrimination, the right to be treated equally to other people, et cetera, um, the right to privacy, to be respected for your personal medical decisions, that those fundamental constitutional and human rights apply in childbirth, they don't go away, and that everybody has to respect those fundamental human rights of the birthing person. So in that area of my my advocacy, it's really, Um, standing up for women and helping them to tell their stories of abuse through whatever avenue we can find, whether it's licensing complaints, direct complaints to hospitals, complaints to joint commission or lawsuits. There's all different ways we can try to, because with that prong, it's like you have the right of informed consent and refusal, but if nobody respects that right and there's no accountability for the violation of the right, how can we say you have the right? It's very similar to the right to be free from sexual violence. We've had that right on the books for centuries, <laughs> the right to yeah. not get raped. But what is the, what's the value of the right to not get raped when in the, in the United States we have a conviction rate of 3% for rape? And that's probably a massive overestimation. You know, So wow. essentially there's a 97% chance that if you're raped, the rapist will get away with it. So what does it mean to say that you have the right to not get raped, right? I, like, and that's actually a really tricky thing in talking about this, including the right to inform consent and refusal in childbirth. How do I tell women they have the right to say no and they have the right to be respected when nobody around them is recognizing that? Right. The reason that I can do that is because it's a human right. Yeah. And it's so interesting that you, you know, that you, that you mentioned rape because I will tell you that working as a doula inside of the hospital it sometimes felt like you were witnessing that. Well, and it, women, many women have described their experiences as that in childbirth, yeah. including when, yeah. you know, I've had clients who have been raped and have then had an experience of violation in childbirth and have said, 
the rape in the childbirth was worse than the rape outside the childbirth. I've heard yeah. that out of women's mouths very many times. And so part yeah. of what I try to explain to providers, because they hear that and they think, oh, you're overstating it, or oh, those women are being dramatic. It's like, oh, geez, they're all being dramatic? <laughs> are they all being dramatic when they call it obstetric violence too? Because they are describing their experiences. And when you understand that, traditionally in the law, if someone touches you without your consent, that's an assault or a battery. It has always been so in you know most US states and elsewhere. So when you understand that a non-consented touching, I said no and you touched me anyway, or you didn't ask, you didn't get my consent to begin with, is an assault. Or I went in to, to work on your right kidney, then I saw your left kidney was diseased, so I took it out, you didn't consent. The law would recognize that as a battery. And so if you recognize that non-consented touching is assault, then it shouldn't be too hard to understand that non-consented touching of the genitals will be experienced by the patients as a sexual assault because that is their sexual body, you know? Yeah, and in fact, yeah. that is how many women experience everything from non-consented forced vacuum extraction to being pinned down, you know, and why they try to raise themselves off the bed, their arms are knocked out from under them so that they're forced to lie flat um, while their legs are spread and people are all have their hands in their crotch and you think, well, geez, I'm holding sure they have a good reason for that. They don't. Yeah. I've heard the stories. Yeah. There's no good reason for any of this crap. Yeah. None of you, have a, you, have a, you have episiotomies, you have uh, unrequested vaginal exams, unrequested cervical uh, strip mem uh, membrane stripping. All that stuff is, you know, we've talked true. about that and, and, and you've highlighted that in the past before. I, I think that what you said very early on in, in that beautifully put, um, the points that you just made, uh, you know, no, it was great. I mean, I, we, we could just, Bliss and I talked about it beforehand. We said, well, let's just, let's just give her the microphone and let her talk the whole hour because she will. Well, um, I, I also haven't told you the other half of my work, which I still want to get to. Half is for the women. We will. Just, but you said early on that all that matters to them is the baby, is the healthy baby. And one of the things that, that we've talked about on this show consistently is that the medical model, because they don't see mother baby as a unit, because, um, obstetricians, uh, once the baby is out, the baby belongs to the pediatric department. One of our tenets is that, is that the medical model sees um, a baby in the bassinet as the only result that matters. Live and no, baby. And nothing else. And nothing live. else. And nothing they else say matters. healthy mother, healthy baby, but they mean live baby, live mother. They don't mean healthy. Right. And they don't mean health. And they don't mean, yeah, they don't mean healthy mother at all because it could be physically or mentally. It doesn't really matter because to them, once that baby's crying in the bassinet, Anything that the obstetrician sort of did to the woman, he can sew it up or he can fix it or he can do this, he can do that. But it, yeah, it's just one of those things where, and it reminds me of, um, of uh, Birth Monopoly and, and you're, you're familiar with them in Kristen Piscucci where they say you're not allowed to not allow me. And people need to know that. The problem of course is that there, it, it's a bullying situation and you're very vulnerable. And if you don't know these things going in, there's no way when you're contracting every three minutes or whatever else that you're going to be able to have informed consent given to you at that point or be able to be legitimately or even legally, you may answer, you may respond to this. Um, you know, uh, is getting a signature to somebody to consent under the, under the threat that uh, of the, you know, the dead baby card or something like that, is that, is that legal? Is that consent or is that coercion? And we just talked about before you came on uh, the one sentence from the um, uh, 
uh, medical ethics that uh, the use of coercion is never acceptable. So, you know, in general, in the law, any contract or agreement that is signed, any signature that is made under coercion or duress invalidates the contract, right? So generally, your, your signature agreement needs to be freely made in order for it to be legally valid. Now, the situation, you know, around informed consent, the question is, there's two prongs of informed consent, inform and consent, right? So the inform represents the patient's right to be accurately informed of the material risks. What are material risks? Those are generally defined as the risks that if the patient knew them, they might consider it relevant to their decision. If they had known them, they might have made a different decision than they did make, you know? So for example, patient signs for induction being told, well, you know, you've had two mildly elevated blood pressure readings around 37 weeks, and it's just our very strong recommendation that we induce you now at 37 weeks, right? And the patient says, well, are there any risks and benefits to that? Babies just do better out than in, <laughs> Said, say the CNMs. <laughs> and then she says, well, are you really? And so what are my options? Babies, it's just our really strong recommendation, and babies just do better out than in. Nobody mentions to the patient that inductions can be failed. Nobody mentions to the patient that she has a Bishop score of one. Nobody mentions to the patient that C-section is a risk of a failed induction. Nobody mentions to the patient that inducing at 37 weeks increases her risk of a cesarean section. So she signs and, without and any nobody And nobody mentions to the patient of what effect on the epigenetics and the microbiome does induction Absolutely. have on your baby in the future? Absolutely. And Generally, all your future babies, by the way. Generally, the way that informed consent is um, is conducted by providers is that they, they inform the patient in a, with the information to get the patient to get to the conclusion that the doctor wants. So I'll give you the information that matches with my recommendation and I'll leave out or downplay the information that would lead you to have a different perspective on this choice than I think you should have sort of thing. And that's misinformation. So I think that, you know, uh, so getting to that question, you just gave the hypothetical, they're playing the dead baby card. They're saying your baby might die. Now, if it's accurate, your baby might die and there is a significant material risk that if you don't have this intervention, your baby's gonna die and that's accurate, then that's not coercion, it's information. It's accurate information. But when it's not coercion, if the woman says, you know, my baby's breech, um, and they say C-section, and she says, um, what are my options? And they say, and God, I, I just, I've heard these kinds of hypos too many flipping times and more often out of the mouth of female OBs um, saying, you know, would you put your baby in the car without a seat belt? You know what I mean? Or like those kinds of things where they trot out a bunch of responses that are about, oh, so you want your baby to die? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when that doesn't actually line, first of all, the person hasn't said anything about actual information that like, well, let me tell you, little lady, if this baby comes out your vagina, it's 25 times more likely to die than if I cut it out. If that was accurate, you know what I mean? And they trotted out that information and then they said the seatbelt thing, that might not look be coercion as, I mean, it would still be coercion in terms of their interfering with the decision once they get into that manipulation seatbelt stuff, you know? But the fact is that there is no information that would validate, that would justify that your baby's gonna die stuff. The vast majority of the time, and women are, when they're playing that dead baby card on women are saying, so you don't care if your baby dies. Oh, you're that kind of mother that wants your baby dead, you know? That's not at all what's at stake in the decision. So the women are being misinformed and then coerced on the basis of the misinformation. Well, and I find that if, if, if a woman were to actually ask the question, well, what is the actual risk? Yeah, they don't know. Nine, yeah, that's the answer. They don't know. Right. But they never <laughs> say that. 
Nor do they ever say, and see, here's the thing about breach. Let's just dive in, right? With breach, they never say to the woman, listen, little lady, I'm, re I'm recommending cesarean section because honestly, I don't know how to do breach. And I'm so scared. I'm so scared. If they, you know, but there's someone who does in your community. <laughs> I can give you his number. Then you, then you are accurately informing, but it would be outside the hospital. And so you're going to have to look into the risks around that or whatever, you know, that's accurate information. Women are never told. That's, eth that's I, ethical. Right. That's that ethical. would be ethical to take, to say the reason I can't recommend a vaginal birth myself as your provider is that I just don't know how I know it's, it's unethical, isn't it? That I'm an OB and I don't know how to deliver a breech baby. It's disgusting. <laughs> you should probably file a complaint on me, but instead they say it's just too dangerous. As if the breech birth itself is too dangerous, as if her body is the thing that will break the baby, mm -hmm. rather than the provider's lack of skills. And, and I then think that, what, that is chronically unethical. And then what happens is that story is passed down from family to family, from woman to woman, and then it becomes yes. the cultural kind of understanding in quotes you know that yes. breach is dangerous and if you have a breach baby you're gonna need to have a c-section a thousand percent and bliss. you know that's that's really dangerous so me. can i tell you a little story on that line you know years ago it was like 2011 i went i went i went to an event and um i was surrounded by women i knew americans and um one of the moms was talking about her recent C-section for breach. Well, of course I had to have a C-section baby was breach. And maybe her baby had been footling. Mm -hmm. I forget how footling came up, but there was an OB with us, a female OB, you know, we were all around 35 at the time. And uh, she, you know, got, I think she went to Harvard. You know, I think she went to like, or UCSF, like she went to a very excellent school. She was like, work, yeah, went to UCSF, was working for Harvard, like had been sent to Africa to like do all the doctor things. And here she is sitting at this table and she goes, well, you know, the thing about footling breach is that the only way that the baby can get out of the woman's body is if the doctor reaches all the way up inside her body and pulls the, the baby down. And, the, and the, the last time we did that at Brigham Young, she said that the, 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 the femur broke. I love how the passive voice, the femur, like it broke on its own. Yeah. The femur broke and the baby got an infection and died. So we're not doing that anymore. We're not allowing breech birth anymore. And I said, oh my God, it sounds like the doctor broke that baby's leg pulling on it. And she goes, oh, that's what makes me so mad. It makes me so mad when people blame the doctor. And then I got home back to Holland and I sent this doctor half a dozen YouTube videos of footling breeches being born without anybody touching the woman's body. And she said, oh, I'm really busy, but I'll check these out sometime if I have time. It, like, you know, just the willful ignorance. <laughs> I want to yeah. stay ignorant. They don't, yeah, they, they don't want to learn. We hold courses, Rick Safries and David Hayes hold their, uh, um, their uh, Breach Without Borders courses. And, you know, we they, they advertise, I don't really advertise much. They advertise extensively. Rarely do they get a, a physician willing to come. There's just no incentive for them to, to learn how to do it. Right. And you're right. And by the way, the, the people, when they say footling breach, uh, very rarely are babies at term footling breach. They're, they're complete breach and the foot happens to pop out when they get toward put, you know, the second stage. So it's often mislabeled, that sort of thing. And so you're therefore right. they justify it. Well, I feel a foot, therefore we need to do a C-section. And if babies at term, the risks of footling are not in place the way they are. If babies no, and it's term. almost impossible because the footling breach means the baby's hips and knees need to be extended. The baby almost needs to be standing up. And at term, there's just not room for, for a baby to be standing inside the uterus. It just doesn't work that way. <laughs> but, 
I mean, maybe it's possible for it to extend its legs on the way out, right? Like it's well, if they're folded, if they're folded up, it's, it, they really can't do that until they're, they're almost completely dilated. And then the, and then by the way, the butt and the thigh or butt and both thighs, if you take a tape measure around that, that diameter, that circumference is bigger than the head. People don't know that. They think the head is going to get stuck because, because it's bigger than the, than the body. Well, it's bigger than the body, but it's not bigger than the body and the legs combined together. Yes. So a lot of things they don't know about breach and, and but they, right. but they talk like they do it. So the point being is that they skew their counseling mm -hmm. to funnel you down a path they want you to take. Yeah. And that is in, in essence coercion. And that is in essence unethical. It is. I agree. And, and, I, and yeah. illegal, which I think is, is the good thing to hear from you. Right. It, um, it is illegal, so tell us but, about the other, tell yeah. us about the other prong. Yeah. So the other prong is, is defending and advocating for the providers who support, you know, birthing women and their reproductive choices. And, and, that, and that means defending and protecting the providers who, for example, offer physiological breach or um, vaginal birth after cesarean section or vaginal birth for twins and all the things that women should be offered in every setting in which they're giving birth because the right to refuse surgery is a constitutional right. It's a constitutional right. It's a constitutional right. So therefore, it, it like, you know, one of my mottos is hospital policies do not trump human rights. Hospital policies do not trump constitutional rights. And yet all of these hospitals are getting away with it because women are letting them. And so um, the other half of my work is advocating for midwives and the rights of midwives to practice um, securely in every place. You know, they, midwives are, should be part of the maternal health system everywhere and they should be recognized as the experts in physiological birth. And they certainly are the experts now that OBs have completely allowed themselves to not know how to do even vaginal birth, let alone physiological birth. Um, and uh, so that, and that's a, that's a lot of work because that, that doesn't exist anywhere in the United States, for example, even in Oregon, where I live, people think about Oregon as being a good place to be a midwife. Um, it's not, not next to the Netherlands. <laughs> and even the Netherlands had work to do. Um, so, you know, midwives aren't paid, they're not secure, et cetera. And, and then and advocating for doulas, which is also going to get back to what Stuart was saying about how you're giving birth, you've got a contraction every three minutes, you're not really in a position to be able to advocate for yourselves. And doulas have a very important role to play with regard to bearing witness and speaking up to protect the human rights of burning people. Yeah, but hospitals have policies, I've seen them in, in print that say doulas are not allowed to do this, doulas are not allowed to question the decision-making, doulas are not allowed to talk directly to the healthcare provider. Oh, I'd love to talk about one of those policies with you because California doulas have consulted me on those policies and it's like, let, let's go for it. Because what it says you can, can do or can't do, like when it says you can't replace the doctor's voice or make decisions for the woman, but you can support the physical and emotional well-being of the woman. Well, guess what, homie? Everything coming out of my mouth is for that. Yeah. yeah. Including it, 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 when I tell you to get your hands off her because she told you to. There's a disconnect. There's a disconnect in the corporate corporatized medicine world mm. about what we're there for. Mm. I mean, it, it, it's 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 so pervasive that they don't. I don't even think that most people know what they're doing. If they would step outside and look at it, they go, "Oh my God, th this is terrible." But they're so in it that they don't take a second to think about. What am I saying to this person? How, how can I treat somebody like this? How can I not offer a woman a second opinion? How can I not offer a woman to tell them that, that I don't do this, but somebody else should do this? Or 
How do I tell somebody at 10 weeks because they're 35 years old, their placenta is going to deteriorate and we need to start testing your baby and probably induce you by 39 weeks. I mean, why do I say these things other than I'm projecting my own fear and my own anxiety onto them, which makes me feel better, mm -hmm. but what am I really doing? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, do you want to talk about doulas for a second and the whole issue of can they speak up? Yeah, yeah, it's you know? your it's your microphone, okay? okay. We, Bliss and I are are, are spectators. Yeah. I mean, so I think something I, that comes up for me in response to what you just said, Stuart, is like the attitude of distrust that exists between the medical world and patients, you know. And and so when you think about like what's going on with these doctors at these at these institutions, you know, I I, I don't know where this comes in if it comes in med school or if it comes in after med school, but. There certainly is a feeling of fear and distrust on the part of many doctors toward their patients. They see them as a liability risk, but unfortunately, they don't see the violation of their human rights, their, especially their right of informed consent, as a liability risk. But that attitude of sort of combat is at play, you know, and at, right in a moment that nobody wants combat in the room. If you were to pull these OBs back, they'd be like, this isn't why I got into this work to combat with my patients. But it like the fear and the just, I mean, again, it's way, the way the doctors talk about patients is that as if they're, you know, they're an enemy. They're an enemy waiting to happen, basically, and that you just have to try to get out, you know, do your service and get out, you know, and that's a really um, sad state of affairs that we've gotten to culturally. And then, well, let's course, be fair. It goes, it goes both ways. That's what I mean. I attitude of distrust between. But, yeah. you know, the, but the thing is, Bliss, it's like, we're, like, I actually think the providers hold a stronger responsibility because you know a lot of the, what we know from working with these patients is that their attitude of distrust comes from their past experiences comes from what they reasonably anticipate that they're going to experience based on their past experiences with medical authorities which is very yeah. unfortunate because there can be exceptions you know what i mean like that doesn't mean that the person coming in now look it's like whether you're the doctor or the patient like a lot of times what's happening in these encounters is they're both playing out past trauma in this interaction right, right. so the the patients had a terrible experience experience with a doctor. The doctors had a terrible experience with a patient, but it's not this, it's not this patient, this doctor, right? And so it's like, just like all of us in society, it's hard work for any human being not to carry our past encounters yeah. into our new encounters. But like, that's, it's a, it's especially important challenge, you know? And, and so I, I guess, just side note, what, what would help providers around that is like trauma support for doctors and, and midwives and nurses that like we don't really have that effectively in the medical system. So their trauma is unresolved, unaddressed, unacknowledged. And because it's not consciously understood or being dealt with consciously, it is unconsciously spilling into their encounters with the next patient, with the home birth transfer, with whoever else. And um, so that's a problem. I wanna talk for a second about doulas and their ability to advocate. Because yes. a lot of, you know, I've talked before doula organizations, I've spoken with many doulas. And as you guys know, there's, um, a big, uh, you know, one position that many doulas take and doula trainers take is that doulas have a scope and that speaking up about what their client wants while she is in labor or challenging a medical authority who is disrespecting or abusing their client is, quote, outside their scope. So that's ridiculous and wrong. Dona is wrong and they need to change that policy. And, um, that's doula organization in North America. And who, any other doula organization that has that policy is wrong. And I'll explain why. They're wrong because, first of all, doulas don't have a scope. 
the people who have scopes are licensed professionals, right? So like if you're a licensed midwife mm -hmm. and, and your regulations define what you can do and can't do, that's a scope. Ditto for a doctor. I, as a lawyer, there's things that I can do that are that I'm licensed to do. Like the whole idea of scope is your license gives you permission to do certain things and you can't do other things because your license doesn't give you permission to do those things, right? Yeah. That's irrelevant for doulas because they're not licensed. And if doulas were to pursue licensure, that would also be a mistake because there's no need for licensure for doulas because you can knit in the corner and reduce her C-section rate and you don't need to be licensed to knit in the corner, right? The only role that licensure could play for doulas would be to control and restrict and there's no that well, wouldn't be appropriate and some midwives say that that is what happened when we took on licensure as well but that's but because midwives that's a whole other conversation midwives. it's a whole other conversation yeah. because midwives are healthcare providers and i would just say anybody who thinks that midwives don't need regulation should go read the european court of human rights opinion of ternovsky versus hungary that's t-r-n O-V-S-Z-K-Y versus Hungary. Um, you know, many court cases, you know, when you file a court case, often a result is that the court writes, a, a, they call it an opinion, which is their explanation of why they ruled the way they did. And sometimes there's like the main opinion. There's a concurring opinion, which means I'm a judge who agrees with the main opinion, but I want to add a little more explanation. And then there's a dissenting opinion sometimes, which says I disagree with what my other judges ruled in this case, and I want to explain why. In Ternovsky versus Hungary, there's a main opinion. So Ternovsky versus Hungary is a, a woman sued the nation of Hungary, Anna Ternovsky, because she wanted to give birth at home with her midwife. And she said, my midwife, the, the legal status of midwives are not regulated. They're not recognized here in Hungary. And so it's so insecure that she could go to jail for attending me because she's not recognized as a health professional. And she's always at fear of jail. And so that violates my human right to choose the circumstances in which I give birth. And the European Court of Human Rights agreed. They said... A woman has a right to choose, just like she has a right to choose whether to bring life into the world, she has a right to choose the circumstances in which she brings that life forth, home or hospital, OB or midwife, and that the state violates the woman's human right to choose if any of her reproductive choices are not legally validated and recognized through regulation. But of course, the regulation would have to be written and implemented in a way that upholds her human rights, because that's what we're talking about here. You can't write a regulation that compromises her human rights, and that means her rights to make all the decisions about her care. It's done all the time, though, by the way. What? It's done all the time. <laughs> What's not all the time? Right? No, they, they write regulations. It's done all the time. They, they oh, write right, regulations to limit your human rights. I mean, we're yeah, seeing yeah, yeah. it we're no, seeing right now. Midwives right have now. A, valid, a very valid concern that the, the, the way that most regs have been written when they get regulated in the United States is to actually control and restrict their ability to do the things that they are trained and equipped and skilled to do and to support yeah. women in their choices. But what the concurring opinion makes so clear in that, in that case and why it's worth reading is because it explains, it, this guy, this judge writes, you know, you might think it's weird in the modern world to say that a liberty interest, the right to choose, needs to be protected through regulation, right, rather than left alone. But in healthcare, it's just the case that if it's not regulated, it's not legal. That because we healthcare is so highly regulated that if you leave it out, you're basically pushing it under the rug. And when you push it under the rug, you make it more dangerous, just like say abortion. You have to put it in the light and protect it as a healthcare choice in order for it to be safe it's not because i mean here in the united states in those places where midwives are not regulated midwives go to jail so mid, the yeah, midwives it's a, telling themselves it's very, illegal is a fantasy 
Yeah, it's a very complex issue, but I want you to finish telling us about yes. uh, your doula. Certainly for doulas, there's no Because we have to wrap up, Stan. Yes. Yeah. So doulas, doulas don't need to be regulated. They are there as the friend of the woman, basically. And you don't need anybody in there to, um, to be regulated for that purpose. But so, so first of all, they don't have a scope because they're not licensed. And second, you know, midwives, I mean, doulas, very often the woman hires a doula because she wants an advocate in the room. She wants somebody there who's going to protect her from further trauma. And so when, when doulas tell them, I think a big reason, I think the reason why doula organizations and individual doulas have embraced the idea that they have a scope and that their scope doesn't allow them to speak up has nothing to do with the profession of doulaism and is more about their their socialized feminine fear of confrontation. A lot of women have a really hard time with confrontation of any kind, even with a friend, let alone with an authority figure, right? Um, And so they avoid the risk of having to face their own discomfort by saying, I couldn't possibly, it's outside my scope. But the reality is that when, when doulas witness abuse and do nothing, they are traumatized. I, you know, they quit doulaism. How many doulas do we know who quit because they got so sick of watching women get birth raped, as you called it, Bliss? Yeah. And, yeah. And, 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 and when they do nothing, they often come out of that carrying guilt and complicity because, in fact, there's a question about if you watch somebody get abused and you do nothing, are you complicit? <laughs> you know, and, and it's a terrible position for them to be in because they feel like they're the most vulnerable person in the room. But really, what are they vulnerable to? Being kicked out? So the, my advice for doulas now is to sit with your client prenatally and ask them what what is what do you want from me during this birth and if the client maybe the client only wants a back rub during her epidural and if that's fine that's fine but maybe the client says i want you to make sure i'm not traumatized like the last time i really last time i was so alone and it was so awful and and i just want somebody there with me because i was so trampled and i'm really hoping you can prevent that and then you know you as the doula can be like can make really clear is protecting your right of informed consent and refusal something you want me to do if the answer is yes then i recommend that the woman and the doula sit together the doula sit with the woman and really do some work prenatally to to feel what comes up when they imagine themselves saying no (laughs) saying no i said no or no she said no (laughs) you're gonna have to step back and standing in their authority their own authority in that way and because what what the doula can't have is a situation where the woman said, yes, please protect me. And then she says, no, doctor. She said, no, episiotomy. And the woman says, oh, Bliss, could you please be sweeter to the doctor? Uh, I'm sorry, doctor. Now you would really be exposed. And a lot of doulas fear that situation. And some of them have had that situation. So prenatally is the time yeah. to work that out, to work it out that I will have your back, but you need to have my back and having your back. You know, we are a team in there, which doesn't mean we're going into this combative. We're going in there with our nonviolent communication. We're going in there with our hearts full of love. But if anything were to come up, we're bound needed to be held we're ready to hold that boundary together and we're ready to recognize that holding that boundary is not rude is not rejecting anybody it's just saying hey doctor hey midwife hey nurse we're so glad you're here but i'm a human being (laughs) and i have some needs in this birth and so i need you to ask me before you touch me so if they do that confronting work and about their own emotions and then when they get to the birth room the woman should say to the to the doctors and providers when they come in this is my doula Hermine or Bliss. This is my doula Bliss. And Bliss's role in this birth is going to be to protect my right of informed consent and refusal. And so what I'm, I've asked Bliss to do is just keep an eye open because things happen so fast around here, don't they? 
just keep an eye open for whether before any intervention happens, before you put anything in my IV or whatever, before you ask me to have an IV, you've looked me in my eyes, you've told me what you want to do, you've told me the reasons why you want to do it, you've told me about my other options, you've answered all my questions, and then you've looked me in the eyes again to listen and hear whether I say yes, you can do this, or no, you can't. And so I've asked Bliss that if that doesn't happen, that she'll speak up because I really need her to protect, you know, just to look out for us all in that way. <laughs> then it, once that mom has laid that groundwork at the beginning of the birth, when you speak up to say she said no, you're not coming out of left field, what the hell is she doing speaking? Who even is this person? Your right. role, your, you have a role in the team because that's what they like at those institutions. They want to know what everybody's role is, right? And so if yeah. your role can be legitimized in that way, your role is protecting the right of informed consent, then you can do that in a way that will feel safer for you and for the client and might actually be more palatable for the team that you're working with. They're not going to love it. They're not going to love it. Well, but no, they're not going to love anything. It's clear. That, yeah. It's yeah. clear. You know, but they're not going to love um, the enforcement yeah. of informed consent, right? They're not yeah. going to love informed consent having to be respected in that room because it's a, it will, it will change everything. Right. So like one of my yeah. mottos in closing, right. Is how much would change in the birth room if it was really clear to everybody in that room that nothing could be done to the woman. She couldn't be touched or anything until someone looks her in the eyes, tells her what she want, they want to do, and adds her all of her questions, tell her all her options and the risks, and then listen to what she wants. It yeah. would transform that room. And the fact that it would transform the room tells us everything we need to know about the extent to which that legal right is currently being respected in L&D. Absolutely. And that right there should be our quote of the week for sure. Um, I wish we had another hour. Maybe we'll have you back. Um, Thank you. I have to move my RV. So we've got we've to wrap it up and I'm sure you've got some rainbows and dolphins to go look at today. True. Yes. RV right there. That looks so good, Bliss. Thank yeah. you for coming and talking to us. Uh, you gave me a lot to think about. I don't know about you, Stu, but, um, and I, I'm sure that our listeners are going to really enjoy hearing everything that you have to say. How do people get a hold of you if they feel like they want to work with you or get your opinion on something that they've experienced? They can um, contact me through my website, which is hayeskleinlaw.com. My last name with no hyphen. We can put it in our notes for the whatever. It'll be it'll yes. be in the, it'll be in the show yeah. notes. Yeah, yeah. And so they can there's Great. a contact form or they can write me at Hermine at HazeKleinLaw.com or I'm on Facebook. Great. And I'm coming I, to get tea from you soon. I can't wait. I think <laughs> yeah, she is. And I I think I just have to I, I this has been the less least I've ever said on a podcast, I think. And I <laughs> and I, I have to say something because everything I'm listening to is, is so brilliant. And everybody asks themselves, well, if it's so brilliant and so obvious, why isn't it instituted in, in the system? And it's because what we've been talking about for a real long time, it's the system that really needs to be just completely thrown out. It's, um, you mentioned something about Dona and, and them not wanting to, uh, having setting up a scope of practice. And we've talked in previous podcasts about other organizations like ACOG or the AMA or MANA all like when people get a group of people together who like to administrate, this is what they like to do. They like to create rules and boundaries and things like that, as opposed to just, I mean, maybe they're better off not having a centralized organization because centralized organizations, in my experience, always seem to get more powerful 
and and more distant from the people that they're their member that they're of their membership and this is sort of just goes on and on and on and on and then they come up with ideas um, that they think are going to be good but they're what's what we call stage one thinking and one of the things that they were trying to do to lower the c-section rate which you talked about at the beginning of your thing is they hired laborists because they thought, well, part of the reason we have C-sections at 7% or 70% is because doctors want to go home and it's a time constraint and they want to go home. So they hired laborists who only work a shift like 12 hours or 24 hours. And they figured, well, there's no pressure on them to do a C-section or not do a C-section. So the C-section rate will lower because there's, they don't have to get out of there because they just go home and somebody else comes on. Well, that's not what happened at all. What happened at all was that the C-section rate fluctuated, fluctuated from 70 to 77% to 70% based on the laborist. Mm -hmm. The theory was completely incorrect, but this is what happens when you get a bunch of people who aren't doing the work, making all the decisions for the rest of us that do the work. Right, and who have their own unconscious biases completely unchecked so that midwives aren't even on their radar for lowering the C-section rate and they're not doing any work to about their own ignorance. Exactly, exactly. And I, I uh, ditto what every, everything Bliss said about having you on. It's great to see you. Um, I'm, I'm happy that you guys will be getting together in the coming month or so, and we'll stay in touch. We probably will want you back on. Anytime, guys. Thank you okay. for doing this show, and thank you for including me on it today. I'd love to come back anytime. Okay. So, Bliss, um, where are you off to next? I'm going to Astoria, which is where Goonies was recorded. Oh, Bliss, you have to go visit my friend Rebecca Orton at her new Astoria Birth Center there. Okay. Well, I'm yeah. there today. So Oh, uh -oh. you are? You're there right now? Yeah. <laughs> I'll hook you up after we you get guys, You guys text us back and forth. I'm just going to okay. say goodbye to everybody. Don't forget to support our sponsors and our partners, Bamboobies and Bamboobies. Silverettes. Yes. And Silverette Cups. And you can find that uh, their, their information on our on our podcast, uh, podcast uh, show notes and stuff. It'll be in there. But and in our stories. And in our stories. And in right. our stories. Hey, everybody, yes. have a good day. All right. Bye-bye. Until next time, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram.